Good evening, everybody, and thank you all for coming. My name is Una Ray. I'm the fairly recently appointed editor at Artlink magazine, and we're here to do lots of things, but we're also here to launch a magazine. Talk about that later. And yeah, really terrific to see you all out tonight. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Ghana custodians and traditional owners and elders past, present and future and extend a really warm welcome to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here today. Also, I'd like to just once again acknowledge that we're really lucky to be here having a great night tonight and, you know, peace prevails for us here and that's absolutely not the case across the globe and we're seeing a lot of that in the work in Free State. So, yeah to um, say that before we get going. I have some amazing company here tonight and I will begin just by introducing them very briefly. They're all illustrious speakers. You can Google them and find out a lot more about them. But first of all, uh, Sarah Waters. And I feel that these people are really well known to you because I'm the out-of-stater. I'm something of a, you know, a, the tourist in the room. Sarah Waters is curator of this particular event, uh, the First Friday's Naughty Histories. And we've uh, spun, I think, a nice title for this talk, Entangled Traditions, Art Writing in a Free State. Sarah Waters is a well-known artist here in South Australia and nationally, but her work, for those of you who haven't yet seen Free State, is on display. So great opportunity to go and have a close look at that. And so Sarah's invitation, thank you very much, Sarah, for bringing us all along to the event. Michael Newell is right beside me here. He is, oh, he's won awards, amazing chair of aesthetics at the University of South Australia and an honorary position uh, with Kent University. And Michael, please remind me of your recent which I've written down, but the philosophy of art schools that won the... That is um, uh, a philosophy of the art school, um, and, yeah, uh, out, out in paperback now. OK, out in paperback. Uh, it won uh, a major, a merry, very modest. We had, I had to encourage him to put that detail on his um, bio in the recent issue which he has written for. And Ali Gamilla Baker, again, I'm sure, an artist of great renown who's very well known to you in South Australia, who grew up on Ghana country, a woman um, with Merning ancestry, the Nullarbor Plain, had great pleasure to work with Ali recently when uh, her and Paola Bala did the recent uh, Visualising Sovereignty issue, which we'll get to as well. And an artist and an educator, very um, widely respected and regarded nationally in her own right. And uh, I'm going to pass over to you just to sort of tell our listeners before we get started just a little bit about this building that we're meeting in here tonight. So over to you, Ali, and thank you, speakers, for, my, um, for, for joining us. Hi, everyone. Thanks for the introduction, Yuna. And I just want to acknowledge... Ghaniata and also um, I guess the vicinity, the closeness that we are to Garawurupari and uh, the River Torrens, but also to acknowledge that this building is, in terms of a site for 
uh, knotty histories and entangled traditions. One of the first repositories of Aboriginal um, archives in South Australia was held inside of this Radford Auditorium. But also just to kind of acknowledge the very complex and layered history of the site going out these doors and through, through the gates here to the grounds of the armoury building and the impact of these and the Adelaide University, the impact of these institutions on our bodies as Aboriginal people in terms of the kind of movement of social Darwinist theories and I guess the, the capacity of us to live um, as human and be free um, has been greatly impacted by the ideas that have been generated in these spaces. So if we think about the kind of eugenesis histories of um, the museum, particularly in relation to the movement of our old people's bones. Yeah, I well, just abso yeah absolutely, yeah. Ali, and thank you, and we'll certainly come to that because there's some really topical work in this exhibition um, that points to those issues. So I want to begin with the work um, that Sarah's... Uh, Sarah, your work is about history. I think for all of us, and I might add it, it's a lot of doctors down here, but we can't help you if you, you know, <laughs> need medical attention. Um, so history is really important to your practice and your process and material practice. Tell us a little bit about how you work with that idea of history, knotty histories to be specific. Yeah, thanks, Una. Um, they are knotty histories and I think... You know, I, I have a, um, I'm an art historian as well, so a master's in art history. And as we know, anyone who studied history, there are certain versions of history that are replicated again and again and have been passed along. And then there's other histories that, or stories from the past that haven't necessarily made it into the, the books or the passed along legends. And I guess uh, for me, those stories, those um, knowledges that get passed along can be embedded in artefacts, they can be witnessed in photographs, they are definitely passed along in traditions and hand traditions. So a lot of my work and, and these works in particular take up traditions of sail making and you know what was uh, initially derogatorily called women's work, but I think is actually a very powerful word now if we can reclaim that, that in those hands and those, um, those skills are patterns and ways of knowing the world that aren't always written down in the books. But I think once we do them, for me it's very important as a practitioner to spend time with every inch of the sales and the techniques and I can just you know say quickly in these works there's uh, latch hook like rag rug making which I'd never done before but my um, great-grandmother great-great-grandmother sorry had done them colonial knots black work samplers so a lot of cross stitch like all of these very precise and intimate ways of knowing carry along, you know, experiences and life events that aren't maybe out there or in our written documents. So, you know, I guess my entanglement with history is one of 
trying to find details from the past that we might not be as familiar with and trying to spend my artwork telling those truths that are largely untold. For me, uh, I'm particularly coming from a settler colonial uh, ancestry perspective, so looking at uh, letters and photographs and records of how colonisation happened, often these have been these ways, you know, particularly in my life growing up, were very normalised. They were, you know, what I considered a normalised upbringing in South Australia, and I grew up in regional South Australia on Bowendick country, was, uh, you know, like having, having a fence and planting a garden of non-native species. These are all invasive colonial tactics or operations that have been happening for generations since my family arrived. So I, I want to draw attention to those, those histories and, those, and unsettle, unsettle those histories, I guess, through material actions. Yeah, totally. And I think it's something that preoccupies a lot of Australians, whichever kind of side of the colonial frontier, if you like to use those terms, that we're grappling with constantly. I'd just like to drill down a little bit into the actual story here, uh, because is it just me or is it a ship? <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's, definitely... a, there's a sense of this, uh, you know, um, movement and there's, is there a, an intimate family history in there? Yes, yes. So uh, my, the first settler um, ancestors or colonial ancestors to arrive were the Mackays and they arrived in 1838 to Port Misery or Port Adelaide and they were sail makers. So they literally, through the materials and their livelihoods, used the catches and Annie Watt was one of their catches, which is quite a famous catch in South Australia that delivered goods all around the coastline. They literally delivered those goods to help forge the colonisation and the building of homes and building of, oh, I guess, establishment of pastoral pursuits um, and, and of that kind. So these are sales. They are based on a model of the Annie Watt very loosely, but also they have a domestic undertone thinking about you know, Mary McKay, who is less known as um, George McKay or Griffith McKay, the, the male sail makers, Mary was at home, you know, stitching, <laughs> making, making things comfortable, making clothing, um, cushioning those kind of discomforts of what it meant to colonise and making that palatable from a home front with imported traditions from very far away, so England, but also there was Scottish ancestry there as well. So um, these all each take up, I won't go into all of them, but they each take up regions. So some of them in the southeast, some of them of the port area, um, others of uh, up in Blinman, so mining pursuits as well. And they all tell stories of the way that country was irrevocably changed from these colonial actions there over generations and generations and generations. So the second sale there, I think, in particular, talks to how the wetlands uh, around Robe and Narracourt and those kind of areas were completely drained. So a, a drainage project that took about a century to change that land from wetlands and migratory birds and so on into pastoral land. And my ancestor very, um, uh, I don't know, controversially was on the drainage board and then once that land was drained, bought it up. 
and had a very successful sheep farm, which I am yeah. you know, oh, questionable. Well, yeah, that, and this is the thing, you can identify the specifics of this. I asked you, um, I guess, about a knotty history of significance, or there's so many topics we could express. You both, Ali and Sarah, have spoken to those. Michael, what for you, if there's one to choose, what is the kind of... What can history help us do now, or how do we, um, how can that be productive for us in terms of history? We'll get to yeah, your pictures. Um, <laughs> There's a surprise. I think it's a, it's a big question, and uh, as you'll see shortly, uh, you know, I'm certainly come at things in this issue of Art Link from a quite different perspective, but it um, links, links up in some broad kind of ways too. I hope that, um, you know, I think the, that there are certainly the different disciplines of art writing bring a, a whole wealth of insights and there are different cultural discourses and I think they do that from uh, even if they have uh, a basis in uh, settler colonialism, imperialism, all these things which you know they at least overlap with in some cases. Um, they nevertheless bring tools that, uh, that we can make use of, that we can use to destabilise existing ways of seeing and, and thinking and they can be of value to us now, which is to say that they should be, all these different kinds of discourses should be nurtured uh, in a critical fashion. Um, uh, but um, that's the same true of the uh, material objects, the material um, resources of art and arts, you know, and, and you know, which become the resources uh, of art history. These are utterly vital to, uh, I guess, that they uh, bring new ideas, they bring new ideas and possibilities for uh, different generations as well in different times. Yeah, absolutely. Beautifully put. And we do have a rich tradition, several rich traditions to draw on in Australia. And I think that we're kind of juggling with the ways we can, they can intersect, entangle, I should say, <laughs> to be on point. Ali. Um, yeah. Ali and I have worked closely together, only met an hour, half an hour, 10 minutes ago. So uh, knowing her through her words and writing for a long time uh, for ArtLink. And I'll just take this moment to acknowledge some um, board members who are here tonight and uh, chair and we'll have a bit of a, um, a wrap up with ArtLink at the end. But Ali's long involvement uh, as a board member for a period and also as a really regular writer and an artist that we've featured in ArtLink. So there's a lot of things really that you can speak to in terms of, you were talking about books, I just remind people, magazines tell a lot of these histories and in fact magazines are really a place that we can experiment when we write histories and we can put different ideas side by side because, you know, it's only a magazine. Um, and ArtLink's been doing that out of Adelaide for 41 years this year. So there's, it's a place for ideas to be tested and um, you've been a great tester of those ideas, Ali. Um, this image in the centre here, talk to this and perhaps to the text that this uh, image ship theme, <laughs> um, enjoyed finding that one, um, reveal, I suppose. So that's from the issue on the left there in 2018. And um, we'll come to Thanks. the next one, Thanks. next. Um, so this is Deadly Alexis West, 
And um, I just want to acknowledge, because I did change, I added her name, Sovereign Fleet Black, with Alexis West, because I wanted to acknowledge her performative work in being the, the incredible sovereign goddess of the photograph. Um, but also, this was made after a performance that I engaged with in 2012 at Tandania. And part of it was thinking, it was around, I'd been writing my, doing research into my PhD for a couple of years and had been running in and out of the colonial archive, in particular uh, the state records and also my family's kind of under, um, holdings within the South Australian Museum and having lots of discussions with my family about that. And I, but it was also around the time that there was sovereign borders. So there was a lot of discussion around boats and ships, you know, as is the narrative of this country. But it was a very polarising time in terms of this use of the word sovereign in relation to um, exclusion and how people are included or excluded from national narratives. And I also work at Flinders University, so we're named after a, a non-Indigenous explorer and our logo is a tall ship. And I'd had lots of kind of heated discussions with the head of marketing about the impact of that logo on my capacity to work into the Aboriginal, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander community and in, attract people. I said, I, I think that it's not doing the university any favours. Um, so there's a tradition, there was a tradition of women in uh, Europe wearing ship hats to kind of, you know, uh, celebrate warring nations. And I'd kind of read about these histories, but also I just kept on finding these model ships at the op shop. And, um, so Adelaide's I made, wonderful, I know, for its I, op shops. I made some um, fly wire, black fly wire hats with cable ties and spray painted them and strapped them to the top. And then I had paper. People thought it was garbage bags at the time, but it was, it's black crepe paper. So it's very robust and cheap and we can make big gowns with a bit of tape and a good afternoon. And so we... we came in as a sovereign fleet into the space. And it was this idea of thinking about um, our sovereignty. Yeah. Um, and I, that Camping in the Shadows of the Racist Text yeah. was published in this issue. And that, is a, that article is available on our um, ArtLink website. It's open, freely available to read. And you talk to so much, I guess, of the entangled histories and uh, an issue that we you just mentioned with the yeah. South, South Australian Museum next door, excuse yeah. me, not directly related to this image because this is a work in the biennial at the moment by Dean Cross, who's a Waramai artist, and um, Gunnel Gunnel is Contracted Field is the title of this work. If you haven't seen it already, it's really important when you do go and have a look that you look at the reverse of this construction, which is really the third history. Because we have here an overlayering of histories, many histories, layers, are, layers of history and layers of reading and interpretations of new, 
new interpretations of old works is really fundamental and that kind of critical engagement or critique and, and um, colonising those works, if you like, if people are using that kind of language to think about it. The uh, Jericho's the raft of the Medusa here. And I'm going to ask you to talk a bit about that, Michael, which I'm sure you'd love to do, <laughs> um, being an art historian of European um, expertise. Can you, and this is a bit unfair, I know. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> All right, so. But, but go on. <laughs> okay, well, what do we know about this work? Yeah. Uh, so the, the, the Jericho. Yeah. Uh, I think I... Yeah, so it is a, um, yeah, there are certain bits, of course, tit bits that are interesting bits that are cut out as well, but the crucial yeah. thing is, um, and now, you know, you may, you're welcome to tell me I've got details wrong, but there was a, uh, a really scandalous uh, shipwreck at the beginning of the 19th century, uh, uh, the Medusa, and you see the, uh, the Jericho's kind of, you know, it's intended in a way to be a documentary uh, image of the suffering um, uh, on this shipwreck. It involved uh, all kinds of uh, people. It ended up with cannibalism, uh, which you don't see directly here, but uh, I think there are, there, are, there are hints of it. The, the raft was yeah. uh, submerged by about a foot mm. underneath the water at certain points. Um, so, yeah, it was a horrible um, uh, sort of human disaster. There were, it was a huge political issue in France and someone could, I'd be very happy if I was filled in on the details of that. Well, fortunately, yeah. I did a bit of research. Oh. I mean, it's, a very, it's a, a very influential, no, he's perfect. He's right on, he's right on the money. Uh, the only salient detail I would add to that is that of over 150, 149 people on the boat, only 15 survived. And it's correct that they, it did turn to this very, ugly, um, you know, macabre story of cannibalism and so forth. But its original title, and I think this is interesting from where we're sitting, is Shipwreck Scene. Uh, and as it was, yeah, a, a catastrophe, and we see this sort of political history paintings, the French romantic tradition sort of transitioning in this work, which has been appropriated and reappropriated many, many times. In um, Dean Cross's work here, the Australian uh, map that is absent is from Norman Tyndale's um, map and with language groups, hard for you to see that in here, but that was his inspiration. So Norman Tyndale was a, a white anthropologist and I'm going to let uh, Ali tell you a bit more about um, his work and the... I suppose the relevance of this image, which is pretty well life-size, I think, to the original painting, but this image here uh, in terms of well, documenting and it's, much, it's a, a gentle word to use for um, his mapping Aboriginal language groups across Australia, but more sinister uh, histories as well. And like I said, we're getting here with um, Dean Cross's work. Three histories overlaid to rewrite, point being here to rewrite these histories. And in this case, there's two histories. Ali, your work has talked to this very topic um, in the past. So Norman Tyndale's, um, well, the IATSIS map, yeah. which is an adaption of Norman Tyndale's work. Um, 
and Norman Tindale worked uh, a lot out of the South Australian Museum. He was a butterfly collector, but also uh, did a lot of camping and journaling, field work in the paddocks with his journal. And the journals are kept in the South Australian Museum, but he also did a lot of work, um, I guess, casting um, and collecting, you know, the work of social Darwinism. So thinking about um, measuring Aboriginal people's bodies. So Uncle Lewis Yellowberk O'Brien, probably the oldest Ghana man, remembers being measured by Tyndale at Point Pierce on the York Peninsula. He remembers him being measured with his calipers. And that's a memory story that I think is published in Artlink as well. Um, he remembers having his head measured, having his exams taken, being um, measured in all kinds of ways. And Uncle Lewis described it as, a, as he was measuring me to prove his own intelligence, which is a very um, important thing. I think what strikes me about this is also the kind of reference to contemporary branding of South Australia. I think about the doorway brand. <laughs> doorway to the country and it's very clever isn't it um and also i just i just noticed this bl black line which also makes me think of julie goff's work but just this idea of and also Lyndall ryan's work looking at massacre mapping across the country so i feel as though there's so many references here and also unlucky uh white people who are on sinking ships, um, so you know, and that kind of hit that trope in shipwreck histories. I was particularly, I, I don't mind a good shipwreck painting. <laughs> we, we're all well. We're, we'd love but, to be spectators yeah. to these kind of tragedies and disasters, don't we? Just look at our kind of fixation with media. Uh, it's a kind of human condition. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, I don't know. Do you want me to keep going? I mean, I can oh. go on about Tyndale. We'll, we'll, I'm happy we'll to. certainly no. We'll certainly come back to that. But I think the point, and this is incidental. This work is in the show. We're looking, yeah. uh, reading um, Ali's work, looking at these histories of um, this kind of painting. In fact, I come from Newcastle, where Dean Cross on I live mainly on Warramai and Awabakal country, and this painting is dated to uh, Joseph Lysette, who is a convict artist who was located in uh, Newcastle at the same time, so it's contemporaneous with this work, and he paints and documents a history, a history of a particular opening up of the land and kind of romantic, romantic picturesque, they're very appealing pastoral sort of scenes, but Aboriginal people feature in his work as well. So it's just those kind of tellings of these stories around the world, as Michael's saying, mm. they're not just... Um, we draw on art histories and pic picturing from the world. Yeah, I think it's really interesting when you were mentioning about cannibalism because I feel as though, though there's obviously documentation of this kind of activity from this shipwreck, it's not like um, it's the construction of whiteness is this kind of desperate cannibalism. But I certainly know that on the West Coast, Daisy Bates and uh, you know other anthropologists have 
misconstrued Aboriginal people in, in particular kind of savage ways and it sticks so to the point where Pauline Hance is, is mentioning it in her book uh, 20 years ago and we've got... But this, you know, so it's interesting what tropes from history and how those constructions of the canon play out in terms of the romanticisation of particular kinds of activities versus... Um, the ways in which, you know, the racialised ways in which this is unfolded, so. Yeah, okay, let's move to another um, side of the country, side of the world, and in fact, this is a work that has been written about in the current issue that we're launching tonight um, by Michael, and would you like to share the title of the essay, Michael, and I guess talk a little bit about what is a a visual analysis that you've written drawing very much on a, a particular tradition, a Panofskian tradition of looking carefully at images and there is a lot to learn about this work. Yeah, sure, sure, yeah. Um, so one thing I, I should say in advance is that um, this is, while in a sense what I've written, it's, it is, uh, in terms of its method, an utterly orthodox piece of art history. It's also, uh, in another sense, um, completely unorthodox and would have great trouble getting in an orthodox uh, art history journal. Um, and so for that reason... It's, I think that's it's a backhanded compliment. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so to, to get the chase, the title, um, that I think we gave it together. Can I, can I say that is... Is I feel we should say it together. Actually, I'll I'll do it. It's okay. You say it. It's Christ's penis in Adelaide. Okay. So I'm going to have to expand on this a little. I know you will demand an explanation. Um, uh, and I go into much more detail. Um, you know, in the the essay, which I hope you'll all read, um, because you're going to have further questions about this. I know. Um, but I was really struck um, at a certain point, it was drawn to my attention as I write that Christ's penis here uh, is at the centre uh, of the painting and it also has all this attention from the viewers. Um, it looks like uh, Joseph uh, on the upper left is looking down uh, at his uh, son, stepson's crotch, St Catherine on the right, uh, seems to be uh, uh, kissing the wrist uh, of, of Christ, but also uh, kind of drawing it away to get a better view. Um, and it, it looks like, you know, Mary is obviously looking lovingly down at her radiant son, but um, perhaps, you know, that's, you know, perhaps she's looking in the same area too. Uh, it's covered, it's a really typical Renaissance thing, of course, by a little diaphanous veil, which only does more to draw attention to, uh, to his penis. Um, and so I thought, you know, what is going on here? Um, and there's a famous essay written by the um, uh, art historian Leo Steinberg, some of you might know it, it's titled The Sexuality of Christ in Renaissance Art and Modern Oblivion. Um, and he writes about such images at great length, and this was published um, uh, first, again, not in a standard art history journal, but he's a great art historian. It was um, published in October in, I think, around, uh, that is to say, the journal October 
um, in around 19, uh, I think it's the end of the 70s, um, uh, or 1980. Um, and it's been republished a number of times since then in expanded form, in book form. Um, and uh, it seemed to me that uh, this is one of the kinds of images that he's talking about, and in some ways it's an even better example than um, the ones he does talk about. He would have loved to have seen it, I'm sure. Um, sadly, he died a few years ago. Um, so, yeah, what, what does it mean, you're wondering? Uh, here's the short version. Um, Get a subscription and find out. Yeah, yeah. There, you will, you'll have more questions. Don't, 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 don't worry. Yeah. The significance, as I see it, is that it's an indication of the... Um, it represents the circumcision, and the circumcision of Christ, which happens uh, eight days, uh, according to Jewish tradition, uh, eight days uh, after his birth, um, that's uh, a letting of blood which prefigures the greater letting of blood, of course, that of the crucifixion and Christ's sacrifice. And that is why this gets all the attention, why it's at the centre of the picture. And so let me stand up and make a few kind of art historian gestures here. You have here uh, a dragon... Uh, it goes along with St. Margaret here. Uh, it uh, represents hell and damnation and sin. Up here, Christ's uh, penis uh, represents uh, or prefigures the salvation. It prefigures his sacrifice. St. Francis, right up there with his stigmata with the red cross indicating the, the passion. That indicates uh, the, the proper sacrifice of Christ. Uh, on, uh, uh, on the cross, and beyond, beyond him in the upper right-hand corner, that looks like uh, an image of the Basilica of St. Francis in, um, in Assisi, uh, and of course that represents, um, that represents salvation, heaven, what uh, awaits us um, uh, if you, you take that journey from sin through uh, sacrifice uh, to uh, you know, to to uh, to the church and to to paradise. So that that's kind of the story. It's um, uh, I think it's a sort of a beautiful, elegant. Uh, I will I'll say it. I, I think it's a compelling account. There are other details. I think astonishing details in it, especially around the saints. Um, and um, yeah. So if you have further questions. Do have a have, have read read the article. It's also got a great picture of me in it. Yeah, it's true, that? and and in you, fact you insisted it, on it. It's it's true. We, we did. Yeah, when you see uh, the picture of him, there's even a picture of me in this magazine. I'm sorry uh, to say, but I mean, what we're seeing here is uh, the icon of of Christianity, and we're talking, I guess, in some ways, all of the experience here of that sort of spread of Christian the Christian doctrines and the history of Christianity as a as a, um, an imperialist, and not to bring it back to a kind of negative here, because I think we really need to recognise the incredible richness that we have in what is now really arcane knowledge. Very few people, uh, myself included, are familiar with the symbolism and the signage and the iconography, not just in this work, which I would... I would um, be pretty certain that many of you in the room have walked past this exactly where it is uh, in the art gallery of South Australia because it is in your, it's in our national and um, state collection. Uh, we can 
you know, it belongs to all of us. And it's returning and looking then at all of these works, which were, let's not forget, this was contemporary art once, ages ago. Uh, but we've forgotten or we no longer have necessarily the tools to interpret them. How important do you think continuing, and I say this, and I guess I'm saying this to all of you in terms of teaching your work as lecturers as well, in teaching or passing on those traditional uh, sets of knowledge and methodologies in, um, to generate younger generations? Yeah, I think obviously the answer is it's it's utterly vital. But in you know in my case with this particular piece of work, one can step back and make a kind of a you know, meta analysis um, uh, of you know how of of this analysis and um, and of Steinberg's analysis, which it's which it it, it draws on. Um, and, um, you know, obviously there are meanings and significances which come out of that contemporary context of its time, which I focus on and which I talk about. Um, but there's a whole other story about why it is that people can be interested in this, why it should emerge out of modern, modern oblivion now. And, um, you know, it's partly because you know, these things happen partly because they answer needs of the times. Um, they happen because we're interested in the body, in sexuality, um, perhaps in different forms of spirituality, in different sorts of ways. And, um, and it holds out possibilities for different kinds of thinking and different uses of these traditions. So. I think, you know, as I said before, um, uh, historical analysis, you know, if there's a certain sort of freedom and agency to it, uh, and if it takes cues from, you know, our own contemporary interests and needs and fascinations and curiosities, it can offer us an, an enormous, enormous amount. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, that sort of uh, exploration of humanity there is, I mean, there's arguments against universalism, but I think there's a lot of arguments for that too, that sort of interpretation. Did you want to add to that, Sarah, in terms of just what you bring to teach? How, how important is history to contemporary art? Yeah, yeah, I was just thinking, um, I was listening to Radio National, anyone who's been a student of mine knows I refer to Radio National a lot, about a book about the importance of forgetting and for somebody whose whole PhD and teaching methodology is about remembering and forms of remembrance of the past um, in order to, I guess, propel us forward in a more knowledgeable way to make decisions or to uh, react against a past to take us in new directions that's that was quite confronting idea like how important it is to forget to leave things behind and I feel like there's a real there's a tension in there that continues to propel my work and my teaching is uh, yeah how how we um, turn things over how we use like if I go back to traditions and skills look at things that we might be losing and think about how we can reuse them and it might be knowledge about symbols for example how we can reuse those to take us in a new direction yeah, yeah. bigger philosophical that, that's, idea that's right sign up where do you teach <laughs> um and ali as well i mean you're talking about entangled histories western art history western art practice traditions i mean these these 
categories are all pretty blurry really now and you in, are informed by so many things in your teaching work. Yeah, so I was responding to what Sarah was just saying. Um, part of the work of thinking about responding to... And I, I feel like subliminally we are familiar with this kind of iconography um, because it has been, you know, especially if you study or if you study art, it, it seems to be predominantly in all of the, the books that you might find um, that were published at a particular time. And, you know, the racist texts were really kind of thinking about what the nation wanted to not remember. Uh, so all of the books that have been kind of tossed out um, of people's homes and of libraries because they weren't being borrowed anymore. So what about our racist histories do we not want to confront? And a lot of that um, had to do with the kind of construction of um, an, a completely white national narrative, but also the white Australia policy, um, ideas of um, really, really violent and vile descriptions of Indigenous peoples and a kind of an, uh, this idea of a linear knowing. Um, so I feel as though uh, there's been this kind of myth of that we have a complete kind of, you know, archival historical record and that... Um, that it's been a kind of a linear thing that we've been able, you know, that we're progressing. And, you know, I encounter that a lot with students that there's a, a sense of like the fragmentation of what we have to, the kind of rubble. And these probably describe a kind of pile up, a human and boat pile up of, um, you know, you're picking through a kind of debris, really. So it's interesting how, um, yeah, how can we respond to that and how do we, what, what are we going to tease out and, you know, to how do we ground ourselves in relation to that? And I feel as though I encourage people to think about it in relation to ideas of justice and think about it in relation to ideas of what is valuable and important to understand about these ideas in the present because they're only as important as, as the stories in the present. How we relate to those stories um, become what, you know, we, we are making them continually, remaking them, reinforcing. Yeah, thank you. And I think uh, the kind of critical analysis of the texts, I'm going to plug the magazine now because it's a launch, you know. We're out on time. It's the 1st of April. <laughs> this is no April Fool's joke. And I have to say, when I put these two uh, images together on the PowerPoint, I thought, and there's other um, reproductions in the book too, I thought it's really a case of where's Willie? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, you know, I had that book. My children had that. My sons had that book. Uh, so, what? A, again, we get these opportunities to see these texts side by side that are very different and it's been the great um, pleasure of this issue which is Art, Write, Read, which is a very, you know, in a sense a very loose thematic but it was an opportunity to bring very diverse writers and writing together 
with, uh, you know, drawn from across the country and just to see what kind of, what turned up in that, in, in digging down or inviting to call out and had a whole lot of um, people put ideas forward. So reading is key. Uh, I hope that you are all active readers. I know how uh, loaded that is. We have um, just, uh, we really have to wrap up very soon and I would love to go to some questions. So I'll go to some questions um, if there's any. <laughs> yes, what is your question? I've just spent 20 years living in the region of northern New South Wales where some of the indigenous families and clans there dispute the, um, the uh, rhetoric of Tyndall. And I would just like to put that forward to Ali and how she feels about a different interpretation of the desire for, for Tyndall to map Australia in a way that indigenous elders have for the last, since 1970s when he, he put forward some of his, most of his ideas for political reasons. I would like to ask Ali what she feels about the dispute around Tyndall's mapping. Thank you for that um, really well um, long question. Yep. And a graduate of the University of South Australia. Uh, this would, um, I'd love Ali to respond to that. I'd also just like to point out that ArtLink will be here, including the speakers, to continue that conversation. But if Ali can give a. Um, I just didn't catch the first part of the question in relation to Northern Tind New South Wales. So the use of Tyndale's work. Tyndale's mapping of um, northern New South Wales Aboriginal yeah. people and just a, a, a remapping from elders or by elders, by people across the country, yeah. how that might happen. Well, it's a very important, I think, conversation around the ways in which, particularly that map, and the IATSIS version of this map, it does have a, a disclaimer at the bottom, if you ever buy it, which says not to be used for native title purposes. So um, there is contestation around the kind of the lines or the ways in which we might think about a line or a border or a fence and the ways in which stories intersect or cross over or come together and perhaps... Um, yeah, different interpretations of that. And I get, you know, I feel as though bearing in mind that a lot of these kinds of ethnographers and anthropologists are the only, you know, sometimes a lot of the, they're the records you love to hate because they are also providing really vital information to community, but they often providing it in ways which are really deeply distressing and insulting and violent. And so you have to kind of read between the lines of that to get to um, what, what else might be happening at that time. So that's, you know, that's the kind of work of, of storytellers and artists and elders and community. As Ali says, it's only a starting point and it's the entangled history that we do have to work from. And these, and certainly for Sarah's, what we're all really talking about here is a lot of unpicking and a lot of work and it's a slow process but we're facing in the right direction of at least trying to 
begin doing those things. And I, I agree with what, you yeah, know, what I, you're saying. I just feel as though there's a lot of work, really important work that historians can be doing into those spaces because it, Aboriginal people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people can't... Uh, well, it's unsafe sometimes to even look at Tyndale's journal because he will go from ceremonial things to other genealogies to... He'll bounce around so much that it's almost like it, it does take someone else to go in there and start teasing that out and working with communities. I feel as though all of that work is really important and really needs to occur. There's been a lot of histories that have been written in ways which are not helpful, but I think that there's a kind of... Like, histories that are like third person uh, dislocating the body from the text and dislocating our communities from, you know, our oral histories, our, um, dismissing um, those. I, I think should... they're really important kind yeah. of conversations about how we bring those those ideas together again, you know. Yeah. Um, and just to um, the questioner there, there is an article written um, by Dominique Chen, who's a, a Gamilaroi woman based up in northern New South Wales, so that might be a great point of contact. Um, there was another question up the back there. I think that um, what that work really highlighted to me was that I don't want to work alone. I don't want to work alone in violent spaces and I don't think anyone should. Um, I want to work collectively. So, um, and I want to work with people who I have an ethical relationship with and all of those kinds of collective practice and collective writing and responding and performing and enacting, which I think Sarah's work does so beautifully, it's that idea of putting these knowledges into action become a really important part of what praxis can be and why this kind of work is really um, still so important for um, the ways in which we're thinking and making. Uh, you know, maybe you want to comment on that? But yeah, thank you for that yeah. question, Bindi. I think I can see you up there. Hello. Thank you. Um, I think to reinforce that, you know, that this cross-cultural collaborations as well are really fertile and that we've had that opportunity. We're having it here, we're having it in exhibitions, we're having it in our teaching work and our um, reading and writing. Um, I don't really think there's time for another question now. What I'd like to do is uh, say a huge thank you to the speakers, especially to you, Michael, first, for having to, you know, be the, <laughs> get the quizzed art historian. Um, but thanks again for uh, your participation to you, Sarah Waters, and for the invitation to come and join this session, and Ali Baker as well. Um, I'm going to hand over now to our um, incoming chair, Jackie Worm, who's just going to say a few words about ArtLink, and we will be outside to chat at length, I hope, uh, with each of you. And there's magazines for sale, need I say. Jackie, over to you. Thanks, Yuna. And um, yeah, it's lovely to be here on Ghana Yata, where people have been engaging with art for thousands of years. Um, I'll give a quick plug to a donations campaign that we're running in the magazine um, for a writers in residence and mentorship program. Um, it, we're starting off with one of those, but we're hoping to roll out more across the country um, in regional, remote and capital cities. 
as well as um, beyond in um, global settings. And each of those costs about $10,000. So dig deep if you, uh, if you can. And I think we'll soon be announcing the first um, writer who'll be in residence with agency projects at Collingwood Yards in Melbourne, or Yarnam. And that's a First Nations writer, so that's very exciting. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed, you can uh, do so outside with the fabulous Megan, um, our CEO, Megan Rainey. Um, and you'll get a free copy of the magazine as well as the current issue to take away. And don't forget, Artlink's always a great gift. We have a reader's survey on at the moment till Monday, so please fill that in and um, we, love, we love your feedback to keep on uh, keeping on. And I really want to thank our fabulous staff, um, the supporters of Artlink and our partners. And we can't realise what we're trying to do, our big program, um, without you. So please continue to spread the word, be an ambassador for Artlink. And now I'd like to acknowledge the contribution of four people who've left our board over the last year. Mark Boyer, who uh, oversaw our finances and advised on strategy. Bill Morrow, who has had a long involvement um, through his legal expertise and art advocacy um, for art and for artists. And Ali Gamilia Baker, who um, we've just heard from. Fabulous um, person to be working with, her sharp insights, generosity and creative engagement. It's always a pleasure and thank you for your contribution. Um, you know, you've seen more of um, Camilla's work as well. Lisa Slade, our outgoing chair. Um, you may not know that Lisa's a wonderful weaver, a weaver of baskets, but also, if you've heard her speak, a weaver of words, bringing thoughts and words together. Her threads connect people, places, art and ideas. So thank you for your inspiring vision and leadership um, as chair, Lisa. You've uh, steered us, steered the good ship art link in uh, a great direction, which we okay. hope to continue. <laughs> and we look, <laughs> we look forward to you continuing to be part of our art link family. So please join me in thanking those people for their contributions. And thank you, Jackie, for doing a fantastic job as acting chair. I wanted just to have a shout out to Arts SA because Arts SA have been such an abiding support for Artlink. And you all know that Artlink is one of the few remaining journals in print in Australia. Such incredible longevity, and that really is down to the support that's been received at a state level. Some national support, but most importantly, some local homegrown support. So Jen and Alex are here from Arts SA tonight. It's really, to me, it's a complete testament to your support that you're physically in the room. Great turnout tonight, incredible turnout. We had to turn some people away because of our you know, numbers. It's just so wonderful to see people so engaged with art and with writing. And from me, a big thanks to Ali for being an incredible 
board member. It's been an honour to serve with you, lady. I look forward to continuing the conversations. Sarah, I love that tonight. Sarah's curated the whole program tonight, so make sure you do some knotting when you leave here. And of course, go down and see the exhibition if you haven't already. Michael Newell, there's a place for old school art histories. I cannot wait to get him back to get more involved in that. And a big thank you and welcome to Dr Yuna Ray, our new editor of ArtLink. A big thanks to everyone for coming along tonight. Get out there, enjoy the rest of First Friday. Thanks to Annika and the team. Cheers. Thank you.